This episode is brought to you by HP+. In a world full of smart devices, isn't it about time your printer got smart too? Now printing is smart with HP+. And the HP Smart app is how it all happens. You can print from your phone with just a tap, no matter where you are. Even from your garage slash home office slash yoga studio. Huh, that is smart. HP+. Learn more about smart printing at hp.com slash smart. This episode is brought to you by PayPal. These days, choices are everywhere. Like, for instance, the milk in your coffee. Would you like it from a cow? A nut? A tree? Everyone wants options. And now your customers have a new option in the way they pay. With PayPal in person. Just generate your unique QR code in the PayPal app for them to scan. And start accepting PayPal in person today. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. And today, we welcome Tim Kinsella. You may know Tim from such bands as Captain Jazz, Owls, Make Believe, and Joan of Arc. He's currently playing music with his wife in a band called Good Fuck. Tim and I spent time talking about his work ethic, the word emo, and the podcast interview starts with us discussing the recent Joan of Arc documentary, where they got the footage and the stuff for it. Plus, Tim's thoughts on saving things. Thank you to all the Patreon supporters out there. Patreon.com slash Washed Up Emo if you'd like to help. This is episode 158 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with Tim Kinsella. internet when this was happening you know like there's no these things weren't made on computers or anything so um the hard copy of things was all we had so yeah it was in my mom's basement and then uh when she sold her house it was just moved those boxes it wasn't it didn't seem like particularly like hoarding or something it was just like maybe it was hoarding i don't know i imagine everyone has at some point people have like oh here's a box at my mom's house from when I was a teenager that I, you know, my parents are, this is a common thing. People are like, oh, my parents are moving. I got to get these boxes out of there. When you were going through that stuff or were you thankful or were, were you, I'd, I'd wish I'd saved more? Well, you know, there's that weird thing where like um, so many of the things you remember because you've like seen a photo of it and then that photo becomes your memory of it, you know, like 99.99999% of everything you remember, you didn't remember on purpose. You just like remember things that are meaningful. Like mm-hmm. it's way different than like, I need to memorize the state capitals or something. Um, or I need to memorize uh, the names of my friend's new kid or something like you intentionally do that but most things you remember you aren't doing that you're just 
living your life and some things seem important and something seems important. And so someone takes a flyer and throws it in the box and never thinks about it again. And then, yeah. So, I mean, the experience of my life and my bands didn't feel at all. Like I watched that, that documentary once and um, like, I'm, I love Justin who made it and I'm like so appreciative that he did so, but it doesn't, it's not the Joan of Arc movie I would have made. It's not like those are the moments. Those are just the moments where someone had a camera around. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's like the filters, like even like I have a, I'll be, I'll be honest, I have a slight resistance to your podcast as I've been aware of it because like a genre is like a filter of understanding something, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like when we were a band, we never thought of ourselves as an emo band. Like I was aware of, like, I was a big fan of bands that were maybe emo, but that it was like a, it was a derogatory term at the time. And I don't think like that sort of, it was such an uncommon phrase. I bet Victor or Sam probably never even heard the term. And it certainly wasn't like my brother certainly wasn't thinking I want to play emo. Um, So that's like a filter that then like limits people's experiences of what it actually is you know like i remember the most common conversation we would have about it when when we captain jazz when we were actually existing um was like man i wish we could like go play a show to like a isolated tribe like in the rainforest somewhere like what is this the experience of this without the the barriers of the filters that we use to understand it you know um so yeah, so I guess I've just always been resistant to like genre things. So to get back to your question, what's the difference in the Joan of Arc documentary I would have made was like the relative weighting of different periods. What I did, that documentary was like, you know, the first half ends in 1995 and the next half picks up in 2015. And it's like, I was certainly present every day of my life in between 1995 and 2015. And what I was doing creatively, I never felt like washed up or like the like it was behind me. I, I still feel like my best work is ahead of me. So, um, so that's why, I mean, it was different from my perspective. Like Captain Jazz was just a thing I did until I was 20 years old. And now sometimes it's like the best job in the world if we can get ourselves organized to play some shows. But like, it doesn't seem like more important to me than other stuff I've done. Right. Does that make sense? Yes, it totally makes sense. To going back to the the resistance, like I totally get it. I always think if I named the podcast something else, um, I would have had more people and more people would have uh, not said no or been resistant. Um, it was a joke yeah. that I made 11 years ago. Um, and I actually, you know, I'm into hardcore and I'm into punk and it's not just. So I totally get that it does that and it's i think it's always been a derogatory term and i don't know of any other genre that has such an averse reaction either it's a laugh or it's a marginalized or it's treated differently when i didn't feel it as much in the 90s um as mm-hmm. I did after the boom, after it got you know on MTV and all those things, I didn't feel it as much. But now that permeates still to this day. Um, anytime that there's a you know a reference of it, or a Marvel character is sad, or a Star Wars character is sad, they're going to use that word when mm-hmm. it's only they're only referencing a two or three year period. And I think like that with you, with they think of Captain Jazz, but then there's also this whole other thing that you keep doing and you keep progressing. And I think sometimes people forget that, that they only think about, you know, your brother in a certain way, or they only think about you when you keep 
you're doing these things. And if you are actually a fan of the music or the person, you would stay with them. Yeah. I mean, I get it. Like if you're walking into a record store and you have so many dollars on you to spend, you're like, well, am I going to listen to the 10th record by this person or do I want something new? Like I get it. But, um, you know, also like if what I'm doing now, you know, my band with my girlfriend, good fuck. It doesn't seem in terms of like the creative impulses and the ambitions and the ways we operate, it doesn't feel any different to me than it felt to be in Captain Jazz at the time, mm-hmm. you know, like the same itch. Yeah. 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 It's the same, uh, life force going into it. Like it might sonically have different kind of signifiers. And I, I imagine and that goes back to, uh, you know, wishing like a, an isolated tribe could hear it. And I actually had this weird experience in like maybe 1997, I guess. I had this friend who joined the Peace Corps and um, she actually passed away. She was in an accident in a kind of remote area, but um, she came back to visit once and she told me this story. She was in Malawi and like living with this tribe for a year. And she told me about like, she got the first John Bark record that just came out and she like played it for these people on this boom box. And it wasn't just that they didn't know how to like process what the music sounded like. They had actually never heard recorded music before. Like they lived that remotely. So they like music for them was just like a live experience. And then uh, this friend, Jen, she, she came back to Chicago to visit and was like, wow, you aren't going to believe this. Like this tribe, they, it's like the same way. Like when my grandma was like bored for a while, I was trying to explain Google to her. She's like, well, how about Tony Bennett? And I was like, okay, so you just type Tony Bennett in here. And then she was like, you mean every computer comes with all these Tony Bennett songs on it? The concept of like hardware and software was uh, just not there for her because of like, you know, her reality and her uh, lifespan. And so this tribe didn't know how to distinguish between like a Joan of Arc record and like recorded music. So it was really intense to hear about. Wow. So I wish that people could just hear the Good Fuck records in that same way. I mean, you know, obviously uh, music is a sort of disposable commodity to the consumers, but the manufacturers put so much, you know, thought and care and effort into it and enjoy. Right. I feel, I feel like the, you know, your aversion or resistance to the word is valid. Um, I would want somebody to hear the good fuck record and not, and think about it as a whole versus having all this backstory. Um, I think that happens to every genre, but I don't think any worse (laughs) than emo. Do you feel that, that tag initially, um, even if, uh, you know, other bands are associated with it before even like gauge or other ones that kind of have some lineage, you know, we're sort of planting the seeds. Are you, are you not over time? Are you okay with that? Are you still sort of upset that that word is attached to what you're doing? Uh, I wouldn't say upset, but it's definitely like, you know, there's like two very separate things. There's like, my creative practices of just me making stuff. And then there's like my career, these things being consumed in whatever way 
more people or less people depending on the year and the um all sorts of factors the you know immediate accessibility of of the thing so i would say like that my career is like a necessary thing i need to think about the same way everyone has any adult has to think about like how's my work life going what are my opportunities for growth and expansion uh, what are my limitations? So in that regard, like the tag of emo is like, n- has always been detrimental. In terms of what's more meaningful to me, the thing that uh, is sort of like a pure impulse separate from the career uh, of just like how I'm motivated to make things every day, the tag doesn't interfere on in that. It's not like I'm ever judging the success or failure of what I'm making according to how much uh, I imagine it might be perceived as possessing the signifiers of this superficial term. Creating things for you is when you're happy, right? You know, um, this is going to sound funny, but I'm kind of always happy. That was a hard one battle for me. But at some point I realized that my happiness, and I think this is just a part of like growing up, and becoming your full self is the realization that your own happiness is largely up to you. So, you know, like my partner would probably think it's a little funny for me to say I'm always happy because she's around me all the time. But also if we're then like, well, consider him compared to other people, you know, she'd be like, Oh, you know, he's probably always happy, but also I'm always creating stuff. Like it's like, we have a very intentional routine the first two three hours of each day and after that it's just sort of flipping between different modes whether it's like projects we take on that are more like our day jobs that require certain creative concentration or it's just like the playfulness of creating our own stuff either way it's it's an all-day everyday activity for me and I I know when I'm shutting it down because even that's like done with a certain intentionality to like preserve the energy to get back to it. Mm -hmm. When you're not creating, what are you doing? You know, I listen to a lot of audio books, like, you know, when I'm like commuting somewhere or I like, uh, you know, go for a run every morning, like I'm listening to audio books all the time and there's always, and a lot of podcasts and there's just like always the sense. And this is a thing that like, why me and Jen are like such a compatible couple is it's just like a constant awareness of like, how is what I'm taking in helping? How is it helping inform what's meaningful to me? You know, like something as simple as like, uh, you know, we always turn down the volume if we're watching something and like commercials come on, we just always like turn the volume down. So there's like an awareness of being present in what we're taking in. And it's not like, you know, it may, maybe it doesn't sound fun or it sounds like it requires a discipline or something, but it's just like, you know, we all kind of create our own realities and there's a certain intentionality in the beginning of like, what kind of person do I want to be? How can I, what's meaningful to me and how do I, um, nurture that. And so they just become things that you want to do. You know, it doesn't feel like effort. Yeah. It doesn't feel like work. Yeah. In terms of like when we shut down, we have a lot of friends, you know, I don't have like any kids. 
we don't have like job jobs, just like a lot of little freelance things. So like the meaning for us in terms of like, I think a lot of people my age have their family as like a unit of meaning, but we definitely are more part of a community. You know, all our friends are creative people. So like, it sounds like a lot, but we probably go to two barbecues a week. And that's probably like the, that's probably like the foundation of our social lives when we get out of the house. And it's always people that are, you know, also very dedicated to what they're working on. And we just sort of sit around and talk about process and gossip about, you know, business strategies or whatever and how to approach it, how to think about it. So yeah, we don't, that must be really motivating. (laughs) That must be motivating then to have other people in that community be able to sort of talk about the same things you're thinking about. That's great. Yeah, it's great. Um, and, you know, like like even that, it's not like an, any sort of intentional positioning to be like, oh, I want to be friends with these people or something. It's just like what happens naturally over time of who am I drawn to? Oh, these are the people I have things in common with. What are some of the business things you guys would talk about? Oh, you know, just like everyone's struggling with like label stuff, touring. Yeah. I mean, just, you know, the, the basics of, uh, I mean, it's not like... You know, we don't sit around and talk about like, oh, how do we build our brand? Or like, what do you think that the people really want? You know, it's more just a matter of like, huh, I wish uh, I wish I had a booking agent in Europe these days. Do you know anyone? Yeah, this guy, but he's more into this kind of thing. Oh, oh I hear this guy's good. Yeah, but he's a little, uh, I wish he was more organized or, you know, just these things. Right. Um, when you're when you're making stuff, do you, do you like it to be uncomfortable? Meaning, not what you did before and trying something new, not for someone else, but for you. You did this last time. I want to do this next time, and not doing what you did before. You know, I have a real like system for some years for like how I place, like how I sort of streamlined how words end up in the songs they do. And um, there's a new Joan of Arc record that we recorded like probably a year and a half ago. And uh, then everyone just got busy with other stuff. And at the time we were even like, well, we have six weeks. We all have nothing to do. Let's just like start recording. And, you know, it'll come out whenever. Um, But I sort of like was a little stuck on how to approach the vocals for it. And then I decided to just reverse the system that I'd like kind of depended on for years. And I don't even know if I could like explain to anyone else how the system, like how the reversals of the system would work for me psychologically. Cause it's just like, I just so embody it um, that I knew I was doing a reversal, but other people, if I explained it, would be like, I don't know what you're talking about. But um, it felt like incredibly liberating. And was like, oh, this is just like, this was the necessary way to get this done. But then there was this moment at the end where I then realized like, oh, but actually the system I've been depending on is expansive enough that it embodies the reversal of every step is like also part of it. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Like it's a wide enough umbrella. Like, uh, you know, like if Christianity is true, it doesn't, it's, it can't contain Hinduism. But if Hinduism is true, it's like an expansive enough model of the universe that like Christianity does not have to get uh, negated or nullified, you know? So it's just sort of like the breadth of the model. So like the making of this, how I did the vocals on this record, like um, helped me understand my own models of creativity in a more expansive way, realizing that it could reverse them. Wow. Does that make sense? Yeah. And, and so I honestly, I don't think like, as an individual, like I shift back and forth between making stuff by myself and with people like a little bit each day, but then also month by month, there's like one thing takes priority over the other by myself. And as a group, I don't feel like I've ever written two songs in the same way. Wow! Like there always needs to be like some total different approach. Like Joan of Arc doesn't, start our records with songs we start with ideas of how to how to reconfigure the recording process and then we see what comes out of that and then craft the songs out of that the exact opposite of challenge or bored it's just playfulness i feel like i've beat the system and that i've grown up and somehow i'm in my mid-40s and playfulness is like the center of my life you know, 2% of what I make gets released. Like I was talking about like how my career is separate than my creative practice, but like within actually creating, there's like the outputting of things. And then there's like the sculpting of what, of that source material. So it's like, there's different modes within the creativity too. You know, like you need to be able to shift between like, how am I going to get some things out of here that surprise me? And then it's really like carving through everything that comes out and being like, ah, here's a nugget that we couldn't have arrived at, at a different way. And this has value and encapsulates the whole in some other way. Mm -hmm. Are you talking to yourself the same way the other band members of Joan of Arc maybe would talk in a room? giving different examples or trying different things when you hit, when you get that nugget. This is a thing that we have in common in Joan of Arc is an understanding of like trying to push each other to like find new depths and new warpings of, you know, different iterations um, of like the sort of limited, there's a limited palette. And then we are, we just enjoy sort of, surprising and challenging each other like what what would you do if i did this let's say theo is like what would you do if i did this and then he does that we might have 12 minutes of recording of that but there's like 30 seconds of that 12 minutes that we're like that's really cool that 30 seconds becomes the nugget of the song but but i should be clear joan of arc is over we don't we aren't doing anything like i'm just concentrating on good fuck now right and um this new Joan Bark record will come out or not whenever, but uh, good fuck is the daily thing. There's nothing I enjoy more than seeing when Jenny plays a solo set or when Bobby plays a solo set or like seeing Theo play drums for someone else or Melina play solo. It's always amazing to me because I'm like, ah, I see 
like they're my favorite musicians in the world to see doing something without me in it. Cause it's like always, you know, I can see the qualities in them that I'm always collaborating with, but then I also see the variations independent from me. It's really cool. It seems like that's the teacher in you. All this talk about like creative process, you know, there's like theory is too serious of a word to use, but there are like the concept, right? That we like attach to that um, feel meaningful to us, right? But then there's like enacting the concept is like what makes the concept meaningful, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's funny to like talk about creative process in this way because it it is like um, there's your mind and your body and they're separate, but they work together. And so we're talking about like uh, the sort of ghetto of emo. And it's really funny because I get the impression that like the things I do creatively, I hope there's it's all about the feeling in the end, right? Creating this feeling and whoever's interacting with it. But there's a lot of concept and strategies and thoughtfulness that goes into that. So it's really funny to me to imagine us as emo because it's never like expressing our emotions is never the beginning of, it's never the seed of a song. Like the seed of a song is always uh, some kind of, technical or conceptual constraint sort of like a you know that mousetrap game you know where it's sort of like it's, it's always kind of like building a mousetrap and then seeing what comes up and then seeing what kind of feeling is in there and the layering of feelings more than the feeling itself like you know that's probably if if we had to be thought of as emo it's i'm sure like ambivalence would probably be the primary emotion where it's just there's always this tension of like competing emotions grinding against each other. Um, so that's way different than like, you know, William Blake or whatever romantic poet that was, Keats maybe that was like, oh, poetry is the spontaneous outpouring of emotion. It's like, oh, that's not interesting to me. Maybe that was interesting to me when I was 11, but like, I, I'm not going to like, surprise myself or expect anyone to be interested by some spontaneous outpouring of emotion. I don't even have emotions to spontaneously outpour. I'm like a grown up, you know, right. I got coffee or beer. <laughs> like <laughs> I'm just doing my life, but I honestly don't even like, I don't try to not hear emo bands. It just doesn't happen. You know what I mean? Like it's not, it's just not like a thing on my radar. Right. But I imagine like the resistance to the, the, genre name like if someone is just like what are the signifiers of soul music what are the signifiers of hip-hop what are the signifiers of jazz it's different than like what are the signifiers of emo it's like you don't want to hear those things <laughs> you know what no. i mean like there's a certain discomfort or like self-indulgence or something that's assumed yeah it's definitely hard i mean you ask 10 people at times square what those words mean you might have some similarities in the soul or the hip hop, but um, mm -hmm. maybe, but emo, I feel like we're, we're going to know what they're going to say. Yeah. Well, so I guess like in terms of like formal terms, good fuck and Joan of Arc and me by myself, it's like, I tend to think of things a lot in terms of tension and release. And, and you had said that as like a defining characteristic in your mind that these these sort of like, ruptures or ecstatic moments 
so the, and I think of tension and release and I think of density and space, but I don't think of quiet loud and I don't think of fast and slow, you know? And I think, it, I think those are, I think that's a meaningful difference at a fundamental level. I really like that. I, I just, the, it isn't just loud, soft, the fast, slow, like you're totally right. Like it's, it's more subtle. It's, it's not in, it's not as in your face. Um, you know, I mean, um, you've mentioned a couple of times that you feel like you're pretty old. Um, I just joke about that. I just, you know, you're, I'm, oh, yeah, I'm, yeah, sure. yeah, I'm halfway to 80. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and you know, I'm just a couple of years older than you, but like, there is still the funny, like music industry thing of like, um, a lot of people my age, you know, I, I hate to generalize, but I would, I would say it's kind of uncommon to be my age and keep doing this and not have more success in some way, but to remain as like devoted to it, you know, like, um, I feel like people either like get popular or give up by the time they're my age. So I, I have like a kind of rare privilege of like becoming a kind of specialist in very certain obscure and specific modes but there's like the music industry doesn't exactly uh, encourage development <laughs> you know it's not about that it's about like a big payoff and so there's the funny paradox of like it's taken me a really long time to get good at what I do but then there's like the inverse proportion of like how many people hear that, you know, like there's still the conversations always have to start with what I made when I was 20, this one record. And it has like a similar weight in people's minds as like, Oh, there's, there's this one record. And then there's this other 25 records. When from my perspective, each of those 25 records, has the same weight. You know what I mean? What would you want people to ask about first and not something when you were 20? I, I'm just like grateful that anyone would ask me anything. I mean, I don't, that sounds funny. I don't, it's not like I make things so that people will ask me about them. I make things so that people will interact with them, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Honestly, I would rather no one asked me anything. I would love to like, not, I mean, I'm enjoying talking to you and, um, and I appreciate you having me on, but like, if I didn't have to sell a, a new record, I, I would rather just be anonymous mm -hmm. and let the records speak for themselves. Like I, every time I post something on Instagram, I like start to post it and then stop. And then like second, I don't want to be like, a person anyone thinks about. I want to be invisible. And I feel like every time I post something on Instagram, someone is like less likely to listen to my new song because they're like, oh, I've already thought of this person. Really? I have a lot of, yeah, I think it's like, oh, I have so much attention to give. This person's already taken some of my attention. You know, so like in an ideal world, no one would ask me anything. They would just, hear the records each time there's a new project it's getting people to pay attention getting people to you know in their three second attention span to click on something yeah and it, it's like 
I have no complaints. Like I have, I have the best life in the world, you know, like I love my girlfriend so much and I love that we like do our band together every day. And I love our band so much, but there's like the reality of like, Oh, we need to pay our rent and buy our groceries. And, you know, we're really trying to get away with something here, not having jobs that we hate, <laughs> you know, to supplement doing what yeah. we love, but trying to be like, man, can we get away with doing what we love? So um, there's like the necessary evils of trying to sell the thing. I would like the thing in the world I'm least interested in is being some kind of personality, mm-hmm. you know, um, which because I've done a lot of different things, I think people, you know, I'm aware that sometimes people might think that I am some kind of personality, but I have no interest in anyone knowing my personality beyond the things themselves, you know, the creative output, but then there's the necessary evil of selling the things. And it's not just like pretension or, you know, self-importance or something. It's very practical that the marketing of the thing actually is like damaging to the creative process. Like it is diametrically opposed and like warps how you think about the thing you're making. So it's like, you need to keep that creative impulse pure and uncorrupted for there to be like anything expressive in it. So the more you think about the selling of the thing, the less you're able to like make the thing true. And that's, that's just like practical. That's not like, yeah. When you're thinking about the marketing, you're not thinking about the creation. Yeah. And even more than, I mean, when you're thinking about, um, you know, when you're thinking about, Oh, I need, to pick up Jenny from work and then we need to stop and get some tomatoes on the way home. And then uh, I need to drop this off at Theo's house. You're also not thinking about the creation, but you're not thinking destructive thoughts against the creation. I think when you're thinking about the marketing, you are literally thinking about things that will destroy the thing itself. Mm -hmm. What do you like most about the good fuck record? The thing I liked, I liked that it felt scary (laughs) to me. Oh, good. Uh, um, I think Saltwater was my favorite song. Oh, that rules. That's because that's like, yeah, that's like the, that's obviously like the heaviest, kind of deepest, most demanding one. So that, that's cool that you're drawn to it. It was weird because it, it, it ended, but it felt, it, it, I don't know, like I was listening to it. I'm like, you know, you just have it on the background and it's like playing. I think it was, I was at work and it was playing mm-hmm. and, I didn't know what track it was. And I was like, this feels like the end. Like, not like, <laughs> like <laughs> this feels like shit's bad. And then it was the end of the record. And I was like, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Has anyone ever yeah, told it's, you that? It's, I mean, it's a very different song than the rest of them in terms of, I mean, uh, at the most basic levels, it's twice as long as most of the songs, um, more than twice as long as some of them. And it's way more dense to put it together took three separate, like there's so many little elements that like we had to have three separate pro tool sessions for like three sections of the song, because it was just sort of like, there's so many minute details. Um, I mean, so it's really funny that like, you know, there hasn't been a single review of the record, but the first record, there's a couple, but the word minimalist was used a lot, but it's really funny because there's actually so many elements. They're just each so tiny and specific. 
that it in the end it might still seem like minimal but it's not minimal at all and salt water is uh definitely the the one that doesn't even seem minimal like it just we're just like let's pile on all the tracks that's rad yeah thank thank you for listening to it what itch does writing do like writing music yeah it feels very they're very intertwined in my mind unlike the sentence level and the paragraph level and the chapter level and the book level music informs every decision you know it's like melodically and rhythmically it informs each sentence and structurally you know like i said density and space and tension and release are still like how do you keep stringing the reader along but also um giving them all the inf- just as much information as they need to keep them reading which isn't you know because i have a desire to keep someone reading my book just to keep them reading my book but that's like a that's what I see my job as a writer in terms of generosity. Like if I'm making this to engage someone, I'm always thinking about the reader's experience and how sometimes they might get like slowed down in a cluster when like information gets dense. Then sometimes it just opens up and they're reading fast. And then it's, it's, they're very intertwined in my mind and my heart and my hands, my feet, whatever. How long does it take to write a book for you? Oof, you know, um, I spent about three years writing this one, and then I got stuck. And then I wrote the second one in three years. And the morning after I sent it off to the publisher, I like had so much momentum with that book that I, the next morning when I woke up, I was like, what am I going to do? I don't know what to do today. Like, I'm so used to these hours. Um, so then I just went back to the first book and was able to finish that. Um, So the second book that came out was actually the first book I wrote, but I couldn't finish it till I wrote the first one. Uh, This new one that comes out this fall, and this was definitely seven years. In that seven years, there was like six months of concentrated attention at the beginning. Mostly it was like 7.30 to noon each day. I'd sit at the library and write for like three months. And then I had these two writing residencies in a row. So it ended up being like eight weeks in isolation. So I was just like writing 10 hour days, 14 hour days working on it. Um, So there was like six months of getting it all out. And at that point it was 212,000 words long, which is a lot. And then there is six and a half years of carving this the story out of that and now you know now the final version is just like seventy five thousand words so it's like a third the length so yeah it takes a long time but in the in the the previous six years it's more like i'll block out 10 days you know i won't think about it for two months and then i'll spend 10 days doing nothing except rereading it and chopping away everything i can that's amazing. I when when you said library, I was like, that makes sense. Like I would go somewhere else. I've um, just editing the book that I put out of interviews. I needed to go somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, I have like a kind of my personal magical cubicle at this library that um, I don't go to every day by any means. But I've been going there since 1994 when I worked there, and um, whenever I start like a new big project. 
you know, it's been a year since I've been there now, but whenever I start a new big project, I'm like back there at that same cubicle every morning and uh, at the same time. And it's just where everything I've made, I've been sitting there. It's funny. I imagine the people it's a, I imagine they would, their minds would be blown if they realized that I didn't work there. Cause like at the, <laughs> at the university that it's at, because, you know, since 1994, there's like a couple months a year that I'm there every morning. What class do you teach again? I'm not teaching right now. When you did, what, what, what class was um, it? Mostly creative writing stuff. Um, I've taught at a bunch of different schools and I've taught, um, like some popular culture and, uh, mass media classes. I taught at the Art Institute, I taught a class for a couple of semesters called the uh, Ecstatic States of America, which was like a history of the evolution of American ideas of utopia. That, that was more a seminar, but mostly creative writing workshops, experimental fiction. Do you like editing writing? Like if when your students were handing stuff in, like what, what, did you like that experience? Uh, I, I kind of love the students. I mean, but students are just people. Like some of them drive me nuts, you know, Um but, you know, it's more common that I really hit it off with them. Um, and I find them very inspiring. And teaching is like the best job in the world, like from the teacher's perspective, if they're a creative person, because it's like pretty good for me to have to be like, you know, I've taught a lot of intro classes too. So it's like if once a year I got to like explain postmodernism 101 to people, it keeps me sharp. Mm-hmm. You know? And then for screenwriting, you have the movie or- Orchard Vale. Is there another one in the works? And did you like that experience? What 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 else did that itch? Because I think that's another whole another level. Yeah, that was that was rough. I mean, um, I made that film uh, as a collaboration with my ex-wife, and it was more a matter of Joan of Arc Records at the time were getting to be like big ensembles I was directing, mm-hmm. um, and she makes documentary films. And so it was more like, it wasn't like, I want to make a movie. It was more like, how would we collaborate? And then it was like, oh, these are the elements of what I do and the elements of what you do. You put those together and you have a movie. I've written a couple other screenplays and I've gotten a couple jobs to like develop things. You know, there's one project I spent two and a half years developing and nothing came of it. Um, So it's it's been a thing, but I think writing books was actually a direct result of that because I, uh, it's so tough there's so many people involved in writing. So writing a book was just like, oh, I can just do this myself. In the end, like the editor of Sunshine, Sammy, like totally saved me. But largely writing is a more solitary pursuit than making a film. I am acting in a film this fall, which is uh, a new thing for me that's pretty exciting. Very weird. When does that? That sounds fun. Yeah, we're shooting in New Mexico for five weeks this fall. Yeah, it's going to be really cool. It's called Firstness. It's uh, the first feature by this woman, Brielle, whose book I put out a couple of years ago. She's amazing. I was in her sh- uh, her first short film, and we had a great time doing it. And so she asked me to be in the feature. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's really intense because I I don't have experience acting, so it's it's uh, it's been an interesting challenge. You're helping others release books by being the publisher of that book company. I think that's amazing. Thank you. You know that was a very you know, I mean, in terms of like earlier, we were talking about like, I don't want to be a personality I, and and that it's, there are inherent limitations to like the expectations that people bring to a new thing I make. So publishing 
the publisher already existed. They put out my first book. And then when the publisher um, had to move to Europe and couldn't do it anymore, he presented the idea of taking it over to me. And it was definitely like I was drawn to it because I was sick of seeing my own name on things, but know, knew that I needed to keep channeling that energy. So it, it, it is uh, very rewarding to me. Turns out I'm not so good at selling books. <laughs> <laughs> no? <laughs> yeah. Why not? I, I, yeah, I forgot that's a part of it. Yeah, people do. I, I, I have a great hunch for what's a cool book to make, but <laughs> the, the marketing is rough for me. And no one would ever hire me as an accountant. <laughs> Uh, well, I'm, I think it's amazing that you're a part of that and helping others while making your own. Um, and I, I, that itch, that itch that I got doing the, the book that I did a year and a half ago, like I just made me want to do more, um, in that space and how much I loved the, the, the feel of it, the, the touch of the book, Mm -hmm. um, versus in the air and it felt like something and, um, it, it gave it more weight. I felt like. Yeah, that's we're definitely focused on like the actual objects and like people wanting to hold it. How did no one have 1984.com before you guys got it? Oh, you know, someone did, but it just happened to be someone who was a Joan of Arc fan. No way. So we like, yeah, we like announced the record and then immediately got an email from a guy being like, Hey, I've been sitting on this domain for a long time. If you guys want it, <laughs> no shit. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, I love that. Of course, yeah. of course. <laughs> yeah, we just totally locked out. Yeah. Uh, and then for someone that's going to check out the Good Fuck record, what's something on the record that they should listen for? Is it a passage? Is it a? Is it a? Oh. Like something that I always like when someone that's you know in the band like, hey, you know, check out this one thing. You know, it had this that you would have never realized, or maybe it's something bigger. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine the other day who does a record label, and we're like pretty tight and have worked together over the years. And um, and he was talking about like, you know, we were playing in Louisville to like ten people, and I was a little grumpy, like, like Jesus Christ, I'm like losing money today, whatever. Um, kind of griping about it. And he was like, you know, you could write songs that would be popular if you wanted to. Like, you've done this to yourself, making these weird things. And I was like, I don't think so. Like, if you listen to, like, I don't know, like, um, I'm not sure what's, what the song title is, but there's a song, um, Missing People, right? Like, that sounds like a kind of weird that's the song that he and I ended up talking about where it's like um, all the formal elements of a pop song are happening and they're happening in the sequence they're supposed to, you know, it's like a, this is a thing in make believe. If you listen to make believe every single song is structured like a zombies song or a Harry Nilsson song. Like we knew like, Oh, we're writing these naughty, noisy riffs. We need to like make the packaging as familiar as possible. So I think, I mean, in, I think what I would list, tell people to listen to on, on Cherry Tree is just that it's a pop record. It's like, in my mind, it's a, you know, there's Dream Sting is just like 
a straight kind of banger and flow flow is just like a rocker and strange pairs like a old new wave song and yeah it's i think it's just if people can like let down their critical faculties of what they expect to hear and just hear it with no preconceived ideas then they will be moved